Can you keep ringing the glass? The, sure. just the, the entire time, just you the know, entire you, time. The More entire time. time. <laughs> I want to see if you can keep time for like all forty minutes. Like, can, can you make that happen? I'm lucky I got that far through. <laughs> you know, I hey, it worked for me, man. I dug it. So, what's going on, everyone? I'm Adam Cataldo, the handsome guy on the other side of me is Manny Gonzalez. Hola. This is the inaugural. Actually, it's the second try at the inaugural podcast of uh, of Bottom of the Bottle. We tried this once last week, and you know, we have no idea what we're doing, so it did not go as smoothly as Manny and I were like. And I can say it to say, Manny, you and I are hypercritical of ourselves. Ted, Ted. So, uh, so we're going to try again. <laughs> yeah. Um, welcome everyone, all three, four, maybe seven of you who are listening. Uh, if it's seven, it's only because my mom is listening on like three different mediums. It's just what she does. She's a nice mom. That's what mother's <laughs> for, by the way. Right. So we're going to try this again. Thank you for being here. Um, bottom of the bottle was something that Manny and I have been talking about now for, what, 18 months, Manny? Something like that? About that, yeah. And it came out of the idea, Manny and I work together. We work for a company called Horizon Beverage. We have different roles. And we've worked together basically for six years. And we talk wine all the time and had the crazy idea that maybe someone would want to listen to us talk about wine. Uh, I don't know if any of you do, but we're going to find out <laughs> soon enough, well, right? You know your mother will twice. So. At, at, at least twice. We got that going for us. You know, uh, tell your wife to pick up the slack, okay? Mine's on <laughs> <going>, so. <laughs> I'll let her know. <laughs> so, yeah. So that, that that's kind of what we're doing. Um it's, we're going to try to do a lot of different things with the podcast. Um, we want it to be for as many people as possible. If you're a novice, if you're a newbie, if you've never picked up a bottle of wine before, we want this to be a safe space for you to come on, not feel intimidated, learn something about either a varietal, a region, uh, a style, a type, and then feel confident that you can go out and find that bottle and try it on your own without being intimidated because wine can be intimidating, right? So we, we, we want to make this helpful. Exactly. And, you know, if, if you're someone that, that has more experience, that, that runs wine programs, that studies wine, we also want to find things that are going to be interesting for you as well. So we'll hopefully have some really cool facts that you've never known before or, or maybe tie it all together, you know, um, in, in a kind of a neat little ribbon so it all makes sense. You know, one thing with wine is that we always think of wine as being kind of aristocratic or hoity-toity, whatever. Um, and, you know, let's remember as we're coming up to the Easter holidays, Jesus turned the water into wine. Wine was for the common person, right? Water was for kings. Wine you could make at home. Um, you know, and I think it's important that everyone can enjoy wine and, and be on the same footing and, and, and give, give them the same respect when they're listening to us. hundred percent. And the, the best, the best part about wine, what got me into wine and in many ways, it's the reason you and I, you and I are friends is wine brings people together. It's, it's a communal thing. It's an emotional experience. You know, it, you can be someplace with, with a group of people that you love and someone pours you something, you have no idea what it is and you try it and you're like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And you find out five minutes later, it's a $10 bottle because it's the people you're with and the experience and the food you're having and everything around it. Uh, it, it it's, I mean, food's this way too. I mean, wine and food, that's why they go together so well. 
is it, it, it truly is an emotional experience. So we kind of also want to impart that passion and that thinking to anyone who, who might be listening. Yeah, hundred oh, percent, you know, and um, you know, I think when we're talking about wine, you know, ultimately for me, uh, and it's not that I'm a Francophile, I only like, which means I like French wines. Um, I like wines from all over the world, wines from Spain. I did wine programs, Italian wines for many years. Uh, we have a really good friend by the name of Chiro Peroni, who is um, our Italian wine specialist at Horizon, uh, who is super awesome, really fun and charismatic. Maybe we can get him drunk enough to be on the show one day and make us some pizza because uh, he's also a pizza maker. Um, and it's not a generalization of him being Italian. You watch his Instagram. He makes pizza all the time, especially this time of year. Um, but, you know, for me, it's it's really, we got to talk France. You know, France is a benchmark of winemaking. Um, it's is where a lot of producers from Italy, from California, uh, all over the world really kind of get their, their start from and, and kind of where they build a lot of their concepts. You know, and France can be confusing when you're looking at the label, but there are ways to make that bottle make sense, you know, and it's all about where that wine comes from. Yeah, it, it is. And, and that's, I mean, that's AOCs. So AOCs, my, my, my full disclosure, this is a good part to put it in. Uh, I am from Revere. My English is awful. I can't pronounce ours. So when I try to pronounce a, a French word, a any other language, it's going to be awful. I'm going to butcher it. It's it just how it is. Um, AOC is basically Appellation Origine Controle, which is a fancy French way of saying this particular wine follows a specific set of rules and comes from this place. We'll get more into that a little later, but I mean, that, that, that's this major concept with France that also is used pretty much everywhere else in the world in, in, in various ways. The other reason why that we have to start with France is history. The history of France and French wine, they, I mean, they coincide beautifully. There's all sorts of um, drama involving wine between, you know, champagne and, and who wants it and how many times has Alsace changed hands between different people. And, you know, this happened with Jura too. Jura was part of, you know, Piedmont for 40 years. Who knew? Uh, not to mention the papacy and the kings doing all sorts of crazy stuff together. So there's this huge history part that goes along with those AOCs that make it a, an ideal place to start. Yeah, well, first of all, I just got to say, don't sell yourself short with your pronunciation because you say things like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and in France, they say Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So just, you know, put some gum in your mouth, put a piece of bread in your mouth and um, pronounce it and you're totally, totally fine. Which, you know, if we're talking about um, the AOC system, I think we really got to also jump into Burgundy. Uh, Burgundy to me is one of the most amazing places because it's really all about the process. And I will be right up front that Burgundy and French wines are not always the most exciting regions, but they do it so well. I think of it like, you know, grandmother's cooking or your grandfather's barbecue, you know, he had to put the briquettes a certain way. You have to use a certain type of lighter fluid to... to to start the briquettes. You have to buy that cut of meat at a specific butcher because it's about the process um, more than it's about the finished product. And it's like French bread. Like in Massachusetts where we are, we have you know a, a bunch of great bakeries, one being Pan d'Avignon in the Cape um, that distributes throughout the uh, Massachusetts. Iggy's bread, they both make great breads, but they're different styles because their process is different. And 
to me, that's, that's burgundy. You know, we're talking about two grapes, 99.9% of the time, we're talking about Chardonnay and we're talking about Pinot Noir, um, you know, but within the region of Burgundy in general, you have all these different little subcategories and places. So, I mean, Burgundy is kind of on the Eastern side, central Eastern part of um, France heading up towards places like Switzerland. It's a cool, um, semi-continental climate. They don't get a lot of oceanic influence in the heart of it. And we have you know, four different sub-regions. So like up in the north, we have Chablis, where you find some real crisp, clean, minerally white wines based off of Chardonnay um, or Chardonnay, you know. Um, that was close. <laughs> it was close. Am I getting there? You're, you're, you're getting there. Really quick while you're on Chablis. Uh, this is the mo one of the more interesting things, and I'll, we'll just throw out as a tidbit right now because we, we don't want to get completely sidetracked. Chablis is actually closer to Champagne, the region, than it is to the rest of Burgundy. So when you're looking at this map, if you're if you're looking at the video feed right now, um, and I'll actually I'll, I'll do a quick for people who can't see it. Burgundy is this small strip of land that runs up and down uh, on eastern France. Chablis is the, like a little ball to the northwest of the rest of kind of Burgundy proper. And it's actually closer to Champagne than it is to the rest of Burgundy. And while it still kind of focuses on the same things the rest of Burgundy does, it makes it unique and, 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 and different, and which will all part of terroir, which we're gonna talk about any minute now. So, so keep going. Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, so further north, it's a cool region. Um, this is not your granddaddy's box wine. This is not jug wine. Uh, this is not cheap wine. These wines are beautiful expressions of Chardonnay and definitely not like that kind of California style we think of, which ain't nothing wrong with those wines at all. But this is a different sense of terroir, you know, which kind of brings us just quickly into what terroir is. Um, terroir literally just means earth in French, um, but it is more than that. It's that sense of place. It's the identity the wine has. So if you're in a cool region like Burgundy and uh, in like Chablis, you have these uh, chalky, minerally soils. You don't see a lot of oak in the wines, and that creates a different style of Chardonnay. You know, and no region, I think, in, in the world takes the concept of terroir more seriously than, than Burgundy, right? It's, it's your soils. It's the climate. It's the grade of your slope, how steep it is, which brings us to the next little part of Burgundy, uh, which is called the Cotor, the Golden Slopes. Now the Golden Slopes, the Côte divides up into two little areas. In the north, you have an area called Côte de Nuit, and Slopes of Night, because you have a lot of clay in those soils, and clay loves Pinot Noir, as Adam says, Pinot Noir, or the French would say Pinot Noir, so you're right there. Um, and this creates some of the most beautiful, expressive uh, Pinots in the world. Just south of that, you have this other little area called um, Côte de Bonne, now, Nui means night. It's kind of on the fence what Bong comes from. Uh, the first people that settled here were uh, the Edwins, who was a Celtic tribe, and some of them were using Germanic terminology. And um, the Germanic word for bone is what we use in English, bone. And so they think that's where it came from because our soils here are limestone and uh, they're much more chalky. And to them, it looked like literally like uh, chalk. Um, there's also a river in this area called uh, Belena, which is kind of what they think it might be, or it's a little spring rather. Uh, it's up for grabs. I prefer, because I'm kind of morbid, I prefer the bone part. 
Um, it just, I think it gives it a little more street cred. Um, and this area Golden Slopes, they call it the Golden Slopes because during the fall, you get these beautiful Golden Slopes. I mean, it looks like, like parts of New England or um, kind of the Northeast. Just south of that, we have an area called Cote Chalonnaise. You get some super awesome value quality wines here with um, villages like Bouzeron or Mercury. Um, and then finally, we have in the south, the Maconnet, which is where you find Macon Village. Uh, this is probably one of the most well-known areas because of Macon Village, because of the villages like Puy Fousse, where you get some real expressive, more fruit forward style Chardonnays that are such a contrast from Chablis. You know, and all this stuff was planted by these monks from this small little village um, in Cluny, you know, and um, I mean, if yeah, you're a monk, what else are you going to do? Just, uh, you, know, you were on a roll and you had to bring up the monks. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> so, uh, it, all right. We were talking about history before. So full, full disclosure, uh, in a past life, I was wanted to be a, a, wanted to get a PhD in history. So my, I am a fountain of useless information from the past. Uh, I did not go that route, but on the, I, I have to scratch an itch right now about, about the monks because Manny just brought them up. Scratch away. We have, the monks get a lot of credit for Burgundy in particular because they were the ones that cataloged all this, the specifics about where Pinot worked well, where Chardonnay worked well hundreds of years ago and, and they did all this great work and they did that. However, the narrative about the monks in Burgundy or in France in general is that they were out, you know, like, hey, we're bored. France is beautiful. Let's frolic and traverse the, the many fields of France and <gasps> the Cote d'Or. We should plant Chardonnay here. Wait, wait. I, they, they frolicked? They, fr they totally frolicked. <laughs> I, it's, it's such nonsense. So, I, okay. I said earlier before about the papacy and the monarchies, right? The, the, if, you're, if you're a Christian or if you know anything about uh, or a Catholic, the papacy essentially... Um, you know, God's voice on earth has always been that way. Pre-Reformation, the monarchies of Europe believed that they were in place by God as well. So in, in their mind, in many ways, they and the, the Pope were on relatively equal footing. Well, the Pope, again, pre-Reformation, believes that he can use his religious influence to garner more power in, in the secular. Monarchs of Europe do not like this because they like having power. They like collecting taxes. They want the loyalty to them and not some dude sitting in Rome who, you know, isn't in charge of the day-to-day -day life in, in that given country. France is no exception. When we get, get to, to the Rhone Valley and Chateau of the Pop, we'll have some really interesting stories to tell about the papacy and the monarchy. But basically why the monks were in Burgundy was... I mean, many correct me if I'm wrong, the climate in Burgundy is not fantastic for growing anything, right? Yeah, it, it can be pretty horrid. Yeah, so basically the king of France was like, you guys can have Burgundy because nothing will grow there and I don't have to worry about you feeding the poor and then being more loyal to you than to me. <laughs> <laughs> they need to need me for food, not you. The monks, to their credit, realized nothing would grow there except grapes, found the right grapes and made beautiful wine. But the idea that, you know, they had this mission to like create the most gorgeous sacramental wine ever 
sought out Burgundy and found it, that, that, that romance that we want to have for wine. Uh, no, the, the, the French king's like, yeah, I'm going to put you in, I'll put you in Burgundy because nothing will grow there. Is more accurate. Was a nice like, guy. You know, I mean, what what king isn't a nice guy, right? I mean, they're all you know, France and its kings. I mean, the, the, that history is boring because everyone just loved them so much. <laughs> <laughs> they they had those nice outfits. They had gorgeous outfits, right? I think I can. I think I can. I can. You have your hat. I think I can support a wig. Right? You know, I mean, it's uh, I. My hair's up though. It doesn't look as good. You know, I wouldn't need the wig. Um, <laughs> One more point, though, here on history, especially as it relates to Burgundy. They have a funky inheritance law that has dramatically affected the way wine is made. So Napoleon created a, a rule during his reign where essentially, and it's still close to today in Burgundy, actually, where when you pass on, your land is split excuse me, evenly between your children. So you're, you know, mom and dad, you own two vineyards in Burgundy in 18, whatever. And you happen to have six kids. You pass on, your land gets split evenly between your six children. Sounds nice, right? They all get to, they all get a piece. Well, this is great. Let's say those six kids all get along. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, that probably wouldn't happen in most situations, but we'll assume they do. Well, now those six kids have six kids. So now we have 36 people that eventually will have that land split between them. Do they all get along? Do they all want to make wine? Does, is one parcels better than the other parcel? And, you know, are they fighting over which one I get? Uh, there's all sorts of crazy stuff that can happen. And when you're doing that, it creates two things. One, you have a lot of different people who want a lot of small, unique plots of land and, and two, in a lot of situations, you don't have enough grapes to actually make wine yourself. So it presents a lot of problems. Well, um, I think that would take us right to like, you know, negociants and negociants are real important um, to Burgundy. So as Adam mentioned, you know, you start with two apostles, which uh, I think of the apostles, which brings us back to Jesus and the clergy and the blood of Christ and hey it's almost Easter so we're tying it all together in a nice little Easter bow bonnet for your bonnet there. Um, so negotiations are really important and, and people like me who were part of the Psalm community for, for many 20 something years we love the idea of the grower producer basically the gentleman farmer who farms his plot of land and goes out in the morning and picks his grapes and produces some beautiful beautiful wine and that's an important thing in Burgundy, in, Burgundy in, in the world but the reality is it's too hard to do. You know, if you, um, you know, if your family doesn't get along, if the kids do fight, if someone decides, I don't want to grow grapes anymore, I'm tired of doing this, you know, or, you know, how can I take my three plots and press my grapes and make juice and ferment that juice to wine, put it in a barrel, put it in the bottle, get a label on it, market it and sell it, it's impossible. Enter the negociants. So today I am drinking the Bouchard I Need Fee. This is, uh, we'll talk about the specific wine in a moment, but they are negociant. They basically work with a lot of small independent growers. Um, they don't own land, um, but those small growers are small families that basically this is how they survive. And it's the idea of the farmer versus the farmer's market. Farmer's markets are awesome, but you also need your day-to-day 
produce, you know. And then over the years, you get producers like, for example, like like Louis Jadot. Absolutely, because that happens to be what what I am drinking. And you know, I, as you were talking, Manny, I just thought about this. Uh, in Burgundy, especially, you guys, if you can see my label, I don't know how good you can see my label. The the varietal it's probably backwards, but in the place is in big letters right here, right? And the producer's in tiny print down here. Because we were talking before about terroir and sense of place and, and whatnot, and how this kind of farming works with the different people in different places, the negotiation system, it all ties in. The place is more important in Burgundy than who's making it. The re the, the, there, there's regional pride in Burgundy um, for just for your for base wines and so on. Uh, Louis Jadot was, was created in 1859. Um, they started as a negotiant. Uh, they've, they've been around for so long. They've been, uh, they've been allowed to acquire a lot of land on their own, which is great. Um, I have their regular Burgundy Chardonnay. Uh, this is the entry level. Burgundy's a pyramid. So it's, yeah, Burgundy's a pyramid scheme. Yeah, well, kind of, yeah. But I mean, it's a brilliant one because it's worked for how many years now? I mean, it's, it's amazing. So basically, it's in terms of two things. One, it's, it's production, how much is made. So as we go up the pyramid, there's, there, there's less made. And it's not that the quality necessarily gets better the higher we go up the pyramid. It's that the specificity and where the grapes are coming from and what they're known to do year to year is it's supposed to be better. So the bottom level, you would have kind of what I have right now, uh, uh, just a Bourgogne. Uh, in many situations, you won't even see Chardonnay on the label. Jadot is nice enough to do that for us. Thank you. Thank you, Michel Jadot. They are, there totally is. Uh, and basically, that, that's the representation of Burgundy as a whole. It can come from any of those areas that Manny outlined earlier uh, to create this, the, this wine it's an expression of, of Burgundy. It's the whole place. The next level is the large level. It's the next rung up the pyramid. And those have to come from very specific villages only within. And you actually won't, I think Manny has one, we'll touch on in a minute. You won't actually get the great name on those. You'll just get the village level. 98.479% of the time, if it's white, it's, yeah, approximately. It's going to be Chardonnay. And 99.2% of the time, it's going to be Pinot Noir if it's red. But it's, you only get the village level, again, because the village is what's important. Not necessarily the, the what's in, you know, the, the, the grape. And it's Burgundy, you should just know. Uh, we go up one more step uh, to, to Premier Cru. So Premier Cru, you'll sometimes see it abbreviated, Manny, right? Is it 1ER sometimes? 1ER, yeah. So Premier Cru are very specific vineyards within these villages that are known for producing uh, either higher quality fruit, a unique style of fruit. So, you know, something makes them special. Oh, there we go. Manny's got an example for us right now. So we got the name of the village and then the vineyard it comes from there. Okay. And... Those, again, those aren't always necessarily better than a village level wine, but the fruit, there's something about that fruit that makes it different and special where they, they want to delineate that as a separate entity. Um, so again, the, the higher up the pyramid we go, the more specific we get. 
The highest point is Grand Cru. So these are single vineyards. The only thing you will see on these things is the name of the vineyard. Uh, Manny's showing one right now. He's a Coton Pouget Grand Cru. Um, and that's, that's all you get is the name of the vineyard. You won't get the, the, the village it comes from and so on. Uh, that, that's all you get. It's the smallest production. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean the wine will be better. But in general, those wines tend to be really, really special. Better. Yeah. <laughs> so one kind of unique point um, in, in so when, when if you have one of these labels too, because we're just talking about labels right now, and you see the word monopole, many that means that it, it, it's one producer happens to own the entire vineyard, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So again, with what we just went through with the inheritance laws and things like that, it's not often where someone wants to give up. Um, you know, their, their plot of land because it's their history and, and so on. So if you ever see the word monopole on a, on a bottle of Burgundy, that's your way of knowing that all the grapes in that bottle came from a single vineyard that was owned by a single producer. It's, ba it's basically their way of saying estate in, in many ways. It's, a, it's an easy way of, of, of saying estate. Um, so yeah, that's the... That's me trying to cram uh, the complex AOC system into, I don't know, five minutes of uh, banter. I don't know. How'd I do? I think you did great. I, it, I, it makes sense to me. So it's all that, all that matters, you know. <laughs> there we go. Um, what are you drinking, Manny? So I'm having some Jeffrey Schumer. So we talked about Burgundy or Burgundy as a, a basic region, which is, um, I mean, not, I don't mean basic as in simplistic, but as a general broad appellation that Adam is drinking. So I'm drinking a single uh, vineyard wine called Jevry Chambertin from Bouchardine Fee. So as Adam mentioned, all this, I'm just gonna do this anyways, cause it's down to the last of it. Adam, you were talking so long, I drank that full glass, um, which is not a bad thing. So uh, all of our grapes are coming from this, uh, this village. And this is located in the Cote d'Or in the Golden Slopes where we have Prime Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but we are in the northern part of Cote d'Or, and in the northern part of that, um, there is this village called Jevry Chambertin. Uh, it's an historic village, and one thing you'll see when you're looking at labels, you'll see the name Jevry, and then there's a hyphen, and then Chambertin. Uh, you'll see Pouligny, Montrocher. You'll see oh, cabron. You'll see Von Romanet. Um, basically, what that means. Grand Cru, Manny. Huh? Don't break those wines, man. That, that, that stuff's <laughs> so basically what that means is that within these villages, there is one of these ground crews where you don't see the name of the, um, the village, just the, the vineyard itself. And because these vineyards are so famous, they're able to append their names, Chambertin, which is an historic, beautiful ground crew. We talked about uh, the, um, the laws of inheritance in Napoleon a little bit ago. It's a bit wackadoodle, but you know, he used to make his soldiers, he loved the wines of Burgundy. And those laws of inheritance Adam talked about didn't apply to anywhere else in France but Burgundy, uh, because he loved these wines so much and he loved specifically the single ground crew vineyard of Chambertin. He would make his guys, his guys, his his soldiers get off their horses and salute the vineyard. As I said, kind of wackadoodle, but probably something that I would do too. Um, I do want to point out one, one point here. So I'm going to move my screen down a little bit so you can see a little better. 
These are my notes. Please excuse them. My handwriting is horrible. So we have a wine called uh, what, a village called Puni Monche in the Cote d'Or. And then, so we have obviously a ground crew called Montreche, um in this village. Right to the south of it, we have another um, village called Chassani Montreche, which has that same uh, ground crew vineyard in it. Basically, if you imagine here to here, they kind of share this very, very famous, famous vineyard. And when you get a, a bottle of Montreche, it'll just say Montreche or Le Montreche. The villages themselves are, and this goes back to terroir, the villages themselves, um, they're growing the same grape Chardonnay. We have more limestone here, a little more clay, but one of the big defining factors is the exposure to the sun. Here we're east facing, we get a very linear, like bright minerally style wine when they're young. Um, in Chisanya, you get a little more richness. It's almost like toffee. Um, you definitely get, not buttery, but you definitely get some more of that texture to it. But when you're looking at a label of the Grand Cru Montreche specifically, if it says just Montreche, it's on the Pouligny side. Now there's no wall in between, there's no line um, or fence that separates both villages. It's just, they know it. When you see Le Montreche, it is on the Chassagne side. Um, so even within the specifics of the single vineyard, we get more specific to where it's located or what parcel, um, the the where they're getting the grapes from which is pretty awesome because it, you can really see this this specificity did i get that right i had a lot of wine of where where the wine comes from so just a little uh little psa little helpful hint from heloise uh when you're going out to get a bottle of moroche you know exactly where that wine comes from my boy manny's wicked snot i did my homework wicked snot uh so kind of building on all this, because I think we've been gradually building here, what this all means and why we started with Burgundy and why it makes a lot of sense is Burgundy is what we can, it's a benchmark wine for both red and white. Um, and a benchmark wine, when I say that, it is a standard by which the other, by which wines throughout the world kind of compare themselves to. Um, you know, Manny and I are in sales. We, you know, we work wholesale. We're in sales all the time. Uh, how many times do we get shown a California Chardonnay, Manny, that is, that is Burgundian in style? Or, <laughs> like they may, they may say that, but, but it's, it's not. <laughs> well, exactly. And, that, and that's terroir. But, but, the point is they're comparing themselves directly to Burgundy is that Burgundy is the standard for Chardonnay in the world, whether uh, you're either trying to be you're mimicking what they do, or you're trying to go the opposite direction. Um, so actually, this might be a good point to actually like, well, what, what is that standard then? So um, crazy generalization right now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing Chardonnay, so I'll, I'll do one for Chardonnay. What, what Burgundy and Chardonnay, what kind of stylistically we're going to be, um, compared to the rest of the world, we're going to be a little lower in ABV. Burgundy's a cold region. We're not going to have a hedonistic 15 point, uh, 14 and a half. Typically, we can get some of those, but in general, uh, it's going to be a little lower ABV. It's going to be uh, a little more... Um, you're going to have 
a little less oak influence. And, and what I mean by that is the wines in Burg the white wines in Burgundy are oaked and, and don't get me wrong, uh, sometimes you'll, they'll, they'll see some new oak, but the oak will not dominate the flavor profile. You're still gonna taste a lot of the grape. You're still gonna taste a lot of fruit. Um, you're also gonna have, um, and to me, what, what really makes Burgundy and Chardonnay uh, special is its bright acidity. So acidity is the sensation um, um, when you drink a glass of wine or you bite into a lemon, it's what makes your mouth water. Um, it is it, when, when there's too much acid, it's sour, like biting into a lemon, but, but your mouth waters when, when something has acidity. And that invites you to drink more and want to eat and so on. And Burgundy and Chardonnay, a hallmark of it from, from the Macan all the way to Chablis is, is acid for days. And it makes really pretty wine and makes it a great food wine. I don't like talking about what I taste because my palate is subpar to say the least. But I, I will say this, that for... Um, for Burgundy and Chardonnay, a couple things that you'll hear a lot of, you'll hear apple, uh, green apple. Again, think of um, if you bite into a Granny Smith apple, that sourness, right, as tasting notes. And you'll also get um, a little bit of lemon, uh, lemon peel, you know, citrus and, and so on. So um, again, broad generalization about what, what white Burgundy tastes like, but that's just, if you're out and you're in a store, you're in a restaurant and you see a white Burgundy on, on a wine list or on the shelf, general idea of, uh, of what you'll be getting. Yeah, and I think what's, what's really cool on that, you know, so like you'll hear oftentimes with California, oaky buttery, because the oak is so dominant. And this is kind of, you know, you can tune this out if you want. This is kind of a geeky part, but um, there's a, a process in, in fermenting or it, it, uh, it's called malolactic fermentation, basically, where your malic acids, which are the acids you find in butters and creams, convert to lactic acids, which are, I'm sorry, Malic acids, which are the acids you find in apples, um, in pears, uh, convert to malic acid, lactic acids. There we go. Thank you. Uh, which is, the, these are the acids you find in butter and dairy and things like that. You have um, been, my friends. In Burgundy, what's really unique is that even though the wines, and even in Chablis, the wines are so minerally, uh, we think that these wines aren't, they don't have mallow is what we would say in the, in the biz. Um, they are all 100% mallow. But because we're in such a cool region, the wines would be so acidic if they didn't do it. And that acid is so, which brings me to Pinot, that acid is so important because that ultimately is the life force of the wine. If you want to age a bottle of wine. Um, so Jerry Chambertin, 100% Pinot Noir, 2018, this is still a baby. Um, we see a decent amount of, of new oak and it's definitely, I think, geared towards maybe a more modern palate uh, with this producer. But these are wines that can age for at least a decade. Um, and that's hard to find in, in the new world. Um, it's not impossible by any means, but it's a little harder because we don't have the acidity that you find within, within Burgundy. And that, that is that freshness, that mouthwater feel that you were saying that invites us to eat. It's also better for, not to be crude, it's better for digestion. You know, it, it, it opens up your salivary glands. It helps you break down proteins and fats. You digest better, you can eat more, you can drink more, you are happier with acid. That's what I think. And, it, you know, I think it's, we, we just talked pretty glowingly about uh, Burgundy and Pinot and Chardonnay, as we should. And I, I don't want that to be viewed as a knock on, on New World wines. Burgundy has had 
what, 700 years to figure out who it is. <laughs> right? yeah. I, they've been making wine forever. And, and they figured out who they wanted to be a long time ago and they go for it. And cause it's, it's their identity as a region, as a village and, and, and so on. And there'll be, um, obviously every house will be stylistically a little different. Manny uh, has, has Bouchard today. He, he made a comment about how it, it's, um, there's a little more oak presence in, the, in that than, than some other, some other uh, producers like Shadow maybe, but it's still not going to be mistaken for a California Pinot Noir. No. Um, still Burgundy. And, and, you know, when I, when we say these, they have this history, uh, I said, I said before, Jadot, uh, 1859. So what, that's 162-ish? Yeah. Uh, uh, B show is actually older than that, you know, yeah. by, by eight, five to 10 years. Eight, eight, no, eight, older, 1831. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. Um, you know, B Bouchard has, has old, ha has long roots. Um, I mean, what, uh, oh, I'm blanking. What the, they, they make good champi. There you go. Yeah. Uh, absolutely gorgeous. I mean, if you like high acid wines, oh, makes my heart sing. Um, <laughs> uh, wines from Burgundy, Maison Champagne. It's the longest um, family-owned, right, Con contiguous house in. in yeah, the, the 1720, and like a really cool fun fact, they um, actually have a bottle here, Pernod Virgilis, just to show you the label. Uh, once again, one of the main things you see is the village itself. Um, Louis Pasteur discovered pasteurization there, and it's so funny because I was I was um, giving a lecture on Burgundy uh, for the store one time, and I was talking about Louis Pasteur discovering pasteurization at, at Maison Champy in the 1860s. And it dawned on me that Pasteur pasteurization was all kind of intertwined. I had no idea until I was midway through my sentence, which shows how really feeble I am. <laughs> and, you know, fun fact, Louis Pasteur is actually from the Jura, which is the region right next to, to Burgundy, which we will do one day as a podcast because... I like Jura wines and want to have an excuse to drink them and talk about we them. We should talk about Manjan. Uh Yes, yes, we should. Um, but I just, now I'm all distracted and sidetracked because I'm thinking about Vinjan. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, so just there's, there's, to kind of summarize there, Burgundy's got a lot of history. They figured out who they are and what they want to be. And even when you bounce from house to house, there is something unique about them that makes those wines identifiable as Burgundy as opposed to Chardonnay from Tasmania and Australia or someplace in Italy or someplace in California, Oregon, et, et, et cetera. Um, it's a unique and special place in the wine world. It really is. Yeah, I would say, going back to earlier, this could be called a benchmark. 100%. Yeah. 100%. So that was... Manny in mind's attempt to cover 700 years of winemaking tradition in 45-ish minutes. I don't know. How do we do? Good. Good. A little older. Um, Corton was first planted in the 8th century, the very top of the hill by Emperor Charlemagne. Yeah. There you go. Again, my boy Manny's wicked smart. So that's <laughs> what we're doing. Um, there's so much to get to in Burgundy. I mean, we... We could do a 10-pot podcast on just, you know, on 
just on just summertime probably there's so much to get to uh and it's something that we will do format wise we're going to do deep dives where we talk about uh, a very specific region someplace or a deep dive on a varietal or a deep dive on a, a, a on on anything uh the this is going to take so many different we're still trying to figure out the different directions we can go in you know regions varietals maybe one day we talk about the style of wine we could do rosé and while you know everyone wants to talk provence we might want to talk about provence versus california versus oregon versus argentina versus new zealand versus australia and try and do that in 45 minutes we just did news we just did burgundy in 45 minutes we can do that right possible <laughs> oh, of course so th there's so many different avenues we're going to take um and we're, we're going to figure that out, but we, we will consistently do a deep dive. Um, so you guys will know in advance kind of what, what's going on. We just haven't figured that part out yet. We're, we're almost there, but we're not quite there. Uh, but we'll pretty there, much every yeah. couple of weeks, you, you, you're going to hear from us in some capacity like this. Yeah. And, you know, check us out on Instagram um, with uh, at bottom of the barrel. Um, reach out to us at bottom of the barrel gmail.com if you have any questions or bottom of the barrel. Sorry, I've had wine. Bottom of the bottle. Let's get it right. It's our podcast. I should know this, right? Um, so, you know, reach out on Instagram, bottom of the bottle, uh, bottom of the barrel, uh, bottom of the bottle at uh, Gmail, bottom of the bottle of Instagram. You can also follow me on Instagram, uh, Life by the Drop 2112, uh, where I pair wine and music. I'm going to be doing a little event with Museum of Science where I'm pairing um, musicians from around the United States um, with specific regions of the world and specific wines based on the songs performing. Um, with my good friend Ruby Rose Fox, check her out. She's awesome, and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be wicked cool. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, it's okay that you've been drinking. I encourage that. You know, we are doing a, <laughs> a weekend podcast, uh, and and we have. It's just so you all know we have changed the name of the podcast like nine times. So it's okay that he's forgotten. It. You know, it's 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 totally cool. <laughs> um, one one part though is that so what we're gonna do on that Instagram page, which Manny will be managing because. I am the old man on the inside and I don't have Instagram and have no idea how it works. Uh, we will occasionally be doing in between podcasts because they're going to be bi-weekly at the moment. Some quick one hit videos. Manny has his life by the drops where he, you know, he pairs wine with music. We'll, if we, you know, if we drink something that really speaks to us or we think we have something to say about, we'll shoot a quick little five minute or maybe less than that quick hit video kind of explaining it and kind of what it is and what it does and post it there. And, you know, maybe we just drink something and pair it with something on a Friday night that's just amazing and want to share it with the world. So there'll be all sorts of little tidbits over there for you guys to check out once we get that up and running, um, which hopefully will be by the time this podcast goes live. So, By the yeah. way, I like drinking the um, Cooked and Wee Reds with Pink Floyd. Mm. That's awesome. Speaking of which, Adam, should I lead us out with some more music? I think that would be amazing. Awesome. Thanks, guys. It was wicked cool. Cheers, guys. Till next time. Cheers. We're going to talk about sewing something. You sew. <laughs> <laughs> I true sew. Ding, your reference. <laughs>